Hi guys, welcome back to the Earthy Lights podcast. This week, we finally, finally, after almost, well, after over a year of rescheduling due to COVID, we have Rose Yavna Taylor on the podcast. Rose is an author of the book 365 Days Past the Traffic Lights, which is a book that describes her relationship with grief after her father sadly passed away with cancer. Uh, it was really great to speak with Rose, who speaks really openly and honestly about about her feelings throughout the process and how those feelings has, have evolved over time. Um, and it was definitely well worth the wait. So I hope you guys enjoy this podcast as much as we did. Without further ado, here is Rose Yavna Taylor. Rose Yavna Taylor, it has been a long time in the making, over a year since I first reached out to you to come on the podcast. But um, such is life now with the pandemic and everything else, that this is how long it's taken. Um, but welcome to the podcast. What's the crack? Hi, I know. Thank you. I feel like it's been such a long time that I feel like I know you guys already just because we've been in so much communication. What's the crack? Yeah, no, feeling good, feeling positive that things are opening up. Hopefully weather will get a bit better. But no, feeling feeling hopeful, looking forward to the summer. Pretty much it. <laughs> Not much else to report because no one has a lot going on in there. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's good to see in UK everything's things are opening up again. I've stuck, my friends are sharing stories about how they can finally sit inside and not have to have like a beer in the pissing rain, which is a which is a, yeah. a nice thing to look forward to for sure. I mean, whether the whether the weather holds up or not is another story. But hey, um, trials and tribulations of living in England, I guess. Um, so many times I've gone out for like rainy meals with my friends. So I'm sat there and I'm like, this just isn't pleasant. Yeah, exactly. But you feel like you almost have to now that it's been taken away from you for a year. It's like, well, this has to be done. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, Well, before we get into, obviously, we know each other fairly well, like you said, almost like pen pen pals now. Um, But for people who maybe aren't aware about of who you are and kind of your story, can you tell us a bit about yourself and and also like the book that you that you wrote that I kind that got me into you got me just what what made me notice um, your story? Sure. Yeah. So. so I guess like the reason why I'm on the pod today is because my dad passed away quite suddenly of cancer um, when I was 24. So um, I tried to deal with and process my grief by writing a book about it. Um, so that's kind of my story in relation to the the podcast. But aside from that, um, I grew up in both Los Angeles and England. So I'm half and half. So my book definitely talks a lot um, about that. And currently... Um, very near the end, hopefully, of my PhD in anthropology, so working hard on that and um, working in like the museum realm. So juggling a lot of things, but all good. Do you want to talk about um, why, why it is that you wrote the book? Because I'm when I heard, I think I I came across you on Grief Encounters. Shout out to Grief Encounters. Um, but um, yeah, and the reason that you wrote the book kind of really struck a chord with me because I think. Obviously, yours was specifically about grief, but I feel like your reasoning can kind of apply to loads of different kind of aspects that people our age kind of go through. Yeah, sure. So I found that at the time, um, so dad died in January of 2018, um, and I really liked reading. So I was like, okay, I need to find kind of grief literature that's going to really help me. Um, and at the time, I mean, there is more now, but I couldn't really find anything that was specifically written um for our sort of age group of the young young adult age um everything seemed to be either for children or written for people who had lost a spouse or written for or by someone that's like in their 50s and they've just lost a parent so 
I really couldn't relate to a lot of things and actually just made me kind of resent those books because you know when you're grieving you're feeling all these emotions and I really really did feel anger quite strongly during that time so I just resented everything and um so I was like you know what (laughs) I'm just gonna write the book that I wish that I had been given on the day that dad died um so basically I started just writing notes about how I was feeling kind of throughout the year um not intent at that point not intentionally to write a book it was just more if I was out and about or sat on the tube and just felt really like overcome with emotion I just get my phone out and write some notes and I kept them all in the same document um and during this time obviously I was also still trying to search for resources and even like support groups and stuff but they were still you know aimed at older people I found anyway um so then on the one year of dad's death which is like a very odd day anyway like you don't really know how to feel or what you're supposed to do I decided to just kind of read through all these notes and then that's when it really hit me like okay I really should actually turn this into a book to help other people um so yeah I just kind of did that and it it really helped me anyway like just to help process my emotions um but I hope that it really helps other people too because I did it's written in a really raw way like I basically just was copying and pasting all these emotions that I'd felt throughout the year so nothing's like sugar-coated nothing's watered down like you know so I'm maybe writing writing a section on it a year after I felt that initial feeling but I'm still writing it in those words that I originally used so hopefully that's really helpful to people um because some things that I did read were like as not like doubting the author but sometimes you you know and you're like "Mm, no you've watered that down (laughs) like that emotion's a lot stronger or even for books written you know my medical professionals or therapists who which are obviously like great but sometimes when you're just reading it and you're like I I can tell that you haven't even though you might work in this realm you personally haven't lost a parent so Mm. even that is hard to relate to and like obviously I resent that anyway because I wish my dad was still alive um so yeah that's why I've written the book but also um it is also designed to try and help people who are helping like bereaved friends to kind of understand more what they're going through and what that person needs from you and what not to shy away from talking about um but again it is still so like grief is so personal like I love to talk and I ask loads of questions like maybe the nature of being an anthropologist but so I really wanted people to ask me so many questions about it and I know that puts people out of their comfort zone but for me like I really needed that um, so I kind of talk a bit about that in the book as well. Rose, before we get into the contents of the book, I just wanted to ask you, I feel like societally we have a tendency to think, ah, I'm struggling with this thing. Let me just find this thing uh, to fix it and then it'll be great. Well, I know I do it anyway. Right? I'm struggling with this. What will fix it? What will make it better? And obviously this writing this book uh, has really helped you with the process. But I'd love to know what also was in the kind of what were the other ingredients that really helped you, I don't know, find a peace of mind with it. Yeah, so I think um, for me, I was, I guess, like just personality wise, like I really like to be busy and I like projects. So in a way, even though having a parent die mid or at the beginning of someone's PhD is like very much not ideal it actually 
in a way was all right for me because I could just really just concentrate on that and just throw myself into it it was something that like I'd chosen to do I was interested in it so it wasn't like I was working a job that I wasn't particularly bothered about which I just found like boring and whatever I mean I did have a part-time job at the same time but luckily I could just like push that aside and just focus all attention to PhD so I really did use that as a bit of a plaster and like coping mechanism but other things that were really important for me were um sticking to a routine um so making sure that I kind of got up at a sensible time in the morning had breakfast got all the most like pressing things out of the way first thing so then in the afternoon if I felt really like griefy or a bit rubbish or a bit brain foggy because of it all at least I wasn't adding stress to that because I had already done a lot of important things in the morning but saying that that process didn't come until maybe like three months down the line because for the first three months it was just the complete cloud and even just you know like I would write myself lists of things I needed to achieve that day and it would be things as small as like wash my hair go and put like laundry on or go to the shops and buy tea bags and just like tiny things just seemed so huge but having a list and being able to tick them off even though they were so tiny like tiny and other kind of real life terms to me that really helped so I guess like yeah throwing myself into PhD as coping mechanism and then routine and lists of little achievements that I feel like I had accomplished something and then obviously talking to friends really really helped but at the same time I found and I think this is something that a lot of grieving people find like trying to plan anything is very overwhelming in the like first few months or however long like even to go and meet my friends out for dinner or something just felt like too much and I'm a massive I love organized fun and I love planning so to me this was quite stressful that I was suddenly finding that really overwhelming um so yeah I think people just find different ways of coping with it in like a myriad of different ways but I think like you said like grief is a process it's not just like a tick box like hey we've moved on from that stage now we're getting there it's like very cyclical and I think if you're trying to tick things off like wow I don't feel angry today yay I must have passed that stage of grief that's just going to stress you out in the long run because you're inevitably going to have a very angry day down the line mm. uh, i know seb planned on asking this question or along the lines of the question so i don't want to steal this question but um that idea that it's it's not time when you're grieving is not linear was was that a key aspect for you to kind of give yourself compassion with here i'm feeling this and i you know, some part of you goes, oh, why am I feeling like this? It's been this amount of time. And, and people say it should take this amount of time. Or I'm doing this and I was fine for the last month. Why is this coming up all over again? And was was that a key part as well of just accepting that it's not it's not going to just run into straight line? It's it's. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think um, and I just from memory, like I don't think I ever try to put myself on that linear trajectory because to me when a lot of people were like oh and then you know you'll go through all these processes of grief and then you'll just be over it and I was like what why would I ever be over my dad dying like why would I want to be over that like to me that just felt very much like okay I'll go through like whatever these like stages of grief and then it'll all be done and dad will be swept under the rug and I'll just move on with my life and to me that just 
felt so bizarre, like from the get go. Mm. So to me, I just always just didn't try to align with the linear process of grief. And I really just did try to feel, feel all the feelings, like even though it was not pleasant, but I try and like bring out in the book that actually to, it actually like, you know, like takes courage to grieve and really sit in the feelings and go through those cycles and be angry or anxious and stressed and like even now like over three and a half like about three and a half years down the line I still feel days where I'm like actually just totally in denial I'm still like I cannot believe that has happened I cannot believe it's been over three years since I spoke I last spoke to dad like part of my brain is like no that's just not true so I think if I was trying to work on the linear grief model, I'd be really stressed by now because I'd be like, oh God, mm. <laughs> I'm, not doing, I'm not getting to the other end. So mm. you just have to just see it as a process. And um, I think there's a, like a grief model that I talk about in the book that um, really helped me, which is the Tonkin model. And that's like seeing it as seeing basically your life growing around the grief. And that has really helped me. So on days where I'm feeling particularly griefy, it might be like a massive black, circle for example and then like a, just a, a little border between a bigger circle around it and that's because I'm having a griefy day but if I'm feeling good and I've got lots going on and I'm like motivated and happy and I'm not stressed about other things then I might have like a smaller black circle with like a much larger circle around it but that just means that you know like dad is dad grief being the small black circle um I'm still carrying that with me through the day but it's much more manageable and sometimes I can even not enjoy it but do things where I'm like thinking in my head like oh dad what do you think about this like look what I'm doing rather than days where it's just way too overwhelming and even to think about dad makes me cry but mm. I feel like I might have butchered that explanation but hopefully <laughs> hopefully that makes a sense no thank you thank you save you on mute sorry I'm going to ask um, a weird question here, but it, there are follow-ups. Um, so bear with me. Where did you like, obviously you're, you speak about how kind of half from Los Angeles and half from the UK, London. Um, where did you most spend time when you were like grieving? When I was grieving um, in London. So basically, so dad, um, so it's kind of mixed maybe. So actually, yeah, interesting. I rescind my answer. <laughs> now I'm going to say it was very mixed because um, when we first found out dad's diagnosis, I was in England um, and that came as a complete shock. And so we flew out. He was actually working in Atlanta at the time. So we flew out to Atlanta. Um, he deteriorated like very, very quickly. So there wasn't really time to have like anticipatory grief, really. It was just like jumping on the ride and having to go along with it. And so then when dad when dad did actually die that was we'd managed to fly him back to Los Angeles so we were there um I then spent another month I think in a bit in LA like dealing with like funerals and like cleaning out like his house there and shipping stuff around so that was just so stressful with so many sort of like life admin things that it, I just couldn't even really process what had gone on so then I came back to London um sort of yeah like four or five weeks later and then that's when it really hit me because then I was like oh god I'm just back at home and like everyone else's lives around me have gone on like friends are still my friends and doing their thing everyone's just doing their thing the tubes are still disgustingly busy like 
why is no one else slowing down? Like, why is no one offering me a seat? Do you know what I mean? When you're just feeling like, almost, um, I joke about this a lot, almost like, you know, when you're out and about and it's your birthday and no one knows it's your birthday and you want to be like, it's my birthday? <laughs> I felt like that. Like, no one knew that actually, like, I've just been through this really traumatic thing. Um, so, yeah, so then I was back in London from, I think, end of Feb, March time. And then I flew back to Los Angeles in August. And then I was there for a, back in LA for a year doing field work for my PhD. So actually that's why I've said it was it was actually mixed because the the first year, so my book also is about the first year of grief. So I'd say half of it was in London and that was that sort of grief was very sort of like immediate like bombardment of everything and trying to get on with PhD and job and friends, but being really like oh god like what's just happened to my life and it being stressed and having all these anxieties and hating everyone that walks too slow on like escalators and putting things in the wrong place and just like cognitively going crazy um and then when I went back to LA the grief kind of changed again because it was suddenly like oh I'm effectively back home in Los Angeles but dad's no longer here and neither is our home in LA anymore so now I'm kind of living with family and family friends out there who took me in which was like great and very grateful for them but it was still like oh this is a kind of new LA that I now need to kind of reconfigure in my head so I think that was a whole new element of grief because it was grieving dad but also grieving like that whole connection to LA as well like grieving a place almost um so yeah different the reason I ask is because Jim and I, we always, I feel like with every topic, we kind of always um, contrast the way cultures deal with certain topics. And when it comes to, you know, death and funerals and the Irish are almost like famous for the way that they deal with it. And it seems a lot healthier than the uh, English way of dealing with things. And I wondered if you felt different, like you felt like there was maybe positive change or negative change when you're in LA as opposed to being in England and how like your friends in maybe London dealt or helped support you as opposed to your friends in Los Angeles like how how did you ever think about that did that ever kind of um did you notice that change yeah definitely so I think it is just a cultural change so disclaimer before I know anyone that might listen to this definitely cultural change rather cultural difference rather than some people not <laughs> caring like I don't mean it like that at all um but basically I think in England like my English family and my English friends were br- like brought it up a lot less I think than family and family friends in America um who wanted to talk about it quite a lot which I was fine with like that was good for me um and I think also the American contingent were very much more open with their emotions as well. So I had a lot of them kind of crying at me about it, which in a way was good, but also at the time can be quite overwhelming as well. Mm. Um, and I think something that really struck me as odd is because uh, we had the funeral in, in LA and there were lots of just like plus ones that came. And I found that so strange, like people that had just never met dad didn't know who I was and I just found it so odd and I didn't know whether I mean maybe that was more of a widespread thing but in my head at the time I was like oh this wouldn't have happened in England and 
I would just be like, why are you here? Like, if someone invited me to a funeral, why I would not want to spend my day doing that. So I found that odd. Maybe that's a culture thing. Not sure. But yeah, so I think classic kind of England were more, still very, very supportive, but in a quieter, more subtle way, maybe. Um, yeah. Just for any Irish people listening, and they hear Seb saying that Irish funerals are <laughs> infamous for being healthy, that that's probably not the case. Me and Seb had a chat yesterday to say how it, Seb basically described a few funerals that he attended in England, and it sounded quite, um, how would you say, like person, person, not personable, Seb. You you, you felt that the yeah, person's yeah, essence like cold. wasn't cold. The person's essence wasn't really flowing through it wasn't really about the person it was maybe like sticking to a kind of script of this is what the funeral mass is like and i just expressed that in ireland i don't think we're by no means experts at dealing with grief but the funerals that i had been to there's a lot of like soul bearing you know there's a lot of the son of the father who died or the brother or the uncle and they really spend minutes talking about like the small things that made that person that person and to me it's very common to see people crying at the funeral and uh, while it's obviously difficult, I see it as essential for the, the grief to go through. And this is what me and Seb wanted to ask you was, for me, somebody's funeral can have a big bearing on how you view their death, meaning like whether or not they received the quote-unquote goodbye that you felt was not even deserved but it was it was more reflective of their life of how they lived and i wondered did you reflect on that that wow that funeral really helped me reach this point with with my dad yeah definitely actually so um with dad's funeral there are quite a few elements kind of involved so dad um was jewish and from a jewish family my mum isn't jewish so technically i'm not really but i grew up a bit like kind of culturally connected to being Jewish but none of the kind of pure religious stuff um so when dad died we were suddenly like oh he needs a Jewish funeral and so we didn't really know what to do so um we were talking to like family a lot and finding a like Jewish cemetery in Los Angeles um and so that was like definitely very different but we knew that he that is definitely what he wanted either even though he wasn't that religious like he was always like I need to have a Jewish funeral um so in a sense that helped but equally because I I remember really strongly just feeling like yeah dad did want a Jewish funeral but I the fact that I have to even go to my dad's funeral at such like a young age and like being so ridiculous has even happened I'm not going to go to one where I can't understand what's happening in it. Like the whole thing was supposed to be in like Hebrew and whatever. And I was like, all our family that are coming, they can't speak Hebrew. Like, why are we even doing this? So I was just like, absolutely not. Things have to be in English. Um, we need to know what's going on at all parts of the like ceremony. So we're not just sat there as like kind of wondering what's going on. Um, so that helped because we, mum, my brother and I really tried to take charge of the service. So we made it kind of a hybrid Jewish, not Jewish kind of thing, um, which was good. And a lot of family appreciated that and friends appreciated that. But then also um, we didn't want it to be, so my dad was like a really happy, silly, 
very silly person. So we didn't want it to be like sad. So we chose all the music that we knew would make him laugh, make us laugh and make everyone who attended laugh. And like it it really did. So like the coming in music, whatever it's called, was like a nice piece of classical music that he used to love playing on like the violin. And then afterwards we played really happy, like the first song we played was That's Amore. Because <laughs> dad used to like sing that to us as children. And it just like broke the ice because after such a, t- like funerals aren't tense, but obviously they're not like pleasant really. So as soon as the intro to that song played, like everyone just started laughing and could see how or like why we'd pick that song for him and like a few others like that. Um, And then where he was buried in LA is actually like up in the hills and it overlooks a lot of the like film studios and his dad was a film producer. So that was fitting. Uh And there are a lot of, it was kind of like, that's the memorial park where all the kind of Jewish film people go. So in a way it just felt like, was a really good send off for him because oh, he's like really? sort of looking over the film studios and surrounded by all these like old film people he used to work with and it was a fun ceremony if you can call it that like I mean not fun but you know <laughs> you kind of yeah, know what yeah. I mean people I were crying but it was nice and um we chose specific people to talk because we knew that they would have different perspectives or stories on dad to tell which was really really nice as well so um yeah, I think just because we orchestrated the funeral really precisely to how we wanted it, we were able to make sure that it really was giving him a good send-off. And so, yeah, it was it was a good funeral, I guess, as far as we can say. And how, how do you think that, um, I, I guess, is how do you think that, that kind of shaped, like, your grief going forwards? I mean... It sounds like a weird question, but the reason I ask is like Jim and I were speaking yesterday, like just preparing for this pod, and I said like my nan died maybe three years ago, roughly I think so, yeah. And the funeral was what you've just said, the exact opposite. It just was like, or at least it felt to me that's how it felt to me. There was no like eulogies from people who really knew her. The priest who's she did the priest who spoke about her did well as much as you can do if you don't really know someone, but it was the typical, you know, Mary was born in London in 19 blah, blah, blah. And she went through the blitz. It's like, we all know that we don't need a history of her life. Like I want someone to talk about who she was, like what made her who she, who we know her to be. And that never happened. And I feel like for me, it kind of really almost like just stunted any grief that I did have for my nan, because the funeral, just, it honestly felt like I was at the funeral of a complete stranger. You know, you were talking about the plus ones, I could have been a plus one at that funeral. Like, even though it was my nan's, it felt like I was at a, someone else's funeral. Like, that I had no business being there, to be quite honest. And it's that that personal side of it, that send off, I felt like we never had that. And I wish now in hindsight that I was more forthright in what I thought we should have done or, you know, and, and not just do things to not upset the apple cart. But I wonder, like, as you said, you kind of had the best funeral possible as, as you can in a, in the world of funerals, how did that then like kind of shape your grief going forward? Does that like allow you to really reflect? And and was it? A, I imagine it must have been a much healthier situation. Yeah, I think so. And I think because we did have like nice moments in it. Like a lot of the speeches were actually like really funny because everyone was just sharing their kind of funny stories about dad or nice stories, and people still kind of will bring those up to me. So that's nice. And um, actually in classic kind of LA terms or um and which is odd now with coronavirus as well and kind of virtual funerals but dad's funeral was actually live streamed 
odd, but it meant that family in the UK that couldn't come could actually watch it. And so it was nice. Obviously, my English family that couldn't fly out were watching it, which was great. But it also actually meant that um, like my friends and boyfriend could watch it too. So I felt like, A, it was nice that they were like, yes, send us the link. We'll definitely watch it. So I didn't have to be like, please, can you watch it? Um, But it just meant that I knew that when I came home, it could still be a discussion because I was worried I would just be stuck in L.A., at the funeral then I'd go back to my life in England with my friends and whoever and then almost want to talk about it but for them it would just be so abstract whereas because some of them watched it it's nice to be able to if I feel like I need to talk about it to help with my grief they know what I'm talking about and they will sometimes as well bring up you know like sometimes my boyfriend might I might be talking to my boyfriend about something and then he'll be like oh like the bee story in the funeral I'm like yes <laughs> Exactly like that. So things like that was nice. And there were just so many things that were almost like British gallows humour sitcom-y things that went wrong at the funeral too, which the American family, don't think they found it that amusing, but me, my mum, my brother, my English family were there. We were like trying not to laugh because I think it would have offended the American fam. But it was just things like, so we put dad in um, a wall crypt because I have a very bad claustrophobia thing with being underground. So I was like, no, there's no way Dad's going underground. We're going to put him in a wall crypt. Um, And he was on, like, the top row. And so to get up there, it's like a winch thing, and, like, it's all very uncomfortable. And you're just all standing around the coffin being, like, winched up, and there's these two, like, kind of technicians on either side, like, holding it on. And you're just standing there like, my God, what is life? What is going on? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like the lift thing I, I don't know what the proper term is for it but it was just so s- slow and everything was like crashing and it was just like oh my god he's gonna fall off it and like it was just squeaking and then they managed to get it up the right height and then they had to kind of like push it into the wall crypt and it was just like I literally remember just being there, like, I'm having an out-of-body experience. I feel like I'm watching this on a British sitcom. <laughs> and I was like, it is funny. And Dad would have found it absolutely hilarious. So things like that, like, because it was, like, a fun kind of funeral, like I said, but also funny moments in there, that's helped the grief because we actually, as a family and with friends, like, do talk about that still. Like, if we want to kind of bring up a bit of a grief chat, an opener is always like, oh, haha, do you remember that funny thing that happened at the funeral? Like, it's kind of a good mm. opener. Mm. Um, so, yeah. yeah. It reminds me of, um, like, Ricky Gervais always talks about how, at, like, his mum's funeral, I believe, they, like, kind of wound up the priest. Like, the priest asked for, like, a couple of little stories that, that he could say about his mum, and, like, they gave him, like, all these, like, falsehoods. And then when this priest was just saying this like complete nonsense, Ricky and like all his family were just like creasing and everyone else was like, oh, how can you laugh? Like, so, you know, you know, and he was like, laughter is the best way to deal with some of the most like tragic kind of situations in life. Yeah, definitely. So like that's actually just reminded me. So classic. Um, when my dad was in his 20s, I think maybe 21, he was a stage manager of um, a Las Vegas show. And he called the show Panties Inferno, which is quite hilarious. But we were like, we need to get this into the funeral. So that's something that like, we did manage to get someone to mention it. So it's just almost like, you know, those times when 
you know, like when you're growing up in a city and you're like, oh, try and get this person to use this like silly word in their speech or something. It was a bit like that. So like, and this was like right at the beginning as well, when it was all still quite serious. And then um, in person giving the eulogy, it was like, and then at 21, stage managed, panties inferno. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah, sometimes that's needed. I think like it really, like humor is needed. Obviously like done in the right way, do you know what I mean? Because sometimes otherwise it will become really offensive. But yeah, if it's done in the right way by the people who kind of almost have that power to use it. I think it can be like really, really a powerful tool to kind of help you get over or not get over things, but kind of just lighten the mood a bit and cut the tension sometimes because we can all be guilty of like wallowing sometimes too much and it makes things worse for sure. I wondered, um, obviously, so you wrote this book a year, well, it came, it was about the first year of grief. And, and like you said, this has now been, you know, three and a half years um, since, since your dad passed away. And, and we've spoken about how grief isn't linear. Um, and I was talking to Jim beforehand about, you know, I've got a friend who passed away and we want to be there for the people who have kind of been left behind who were closest to him. But as a friend, you know, as that support system, so to speak, I sometimes feel, and maybe this is a very English thing, but I don't want to be, you know, it's, it's been a year. I don't want to be that person who's like, Hey, are you still okay? Like, how, you know, how are you doing? Because they might be having a good day and they might not want me to ask them these types of questions. And, and I almost feel like there's a point where, I kind of use the analogy that like the support system or the friends are like crutches. Mm -hmm. And there's a point where you have to, you know, when you break your leg, you have to take that first step um, without those crutches. And I wondered like, how, how was that for you with your friends? Like where was there a point where you thought, you know what, now I, I'm not over it, but now it's up to me to kind of deal with this by myself now and, and not, not have my friends ask me how I am or not, or not rely on them or expect them to ask me how I'm doing. Or is it a point where you still think, you know what, like, like you said, you're never going to get over your dad. Why would you ever want to get over your dad dying? And you kind of expect your friends or your closest ones to always be willing to have that conversation with you. Yeah. So I think I'm much more on like the second half of the camp. Um, definitely. I, there was a definite moment where in time, I guess, maybe like the one year mark where friends do just stop kind of asking. But also be before the one year mark too, I think there's just, when they know it's the one year coming up, there's like momentum again to check in. Um, but very, very few friends now still will ask me. And I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because I don't want to be like, excuse me, why am I not like, top of your priority rest of the day like me and my dad dad but it would be nice like well it's so hard to articulate I think even now and I, I'm at the moment because I've only got like less than a month left in my PhD so I'm very stressed with that so because of that the, I am feeling more sort of or like less resilient to the grief at the moment so I will mm. have kind of breakdowns and then suddenly what was about something going wrong or something I'm confused about my PhD then suddenly turns into like an afternoon crying about dad um but then I think because time has passed it makes me feel like I can't reach out to friends to be like oh I'm having a really sad day can I call you because I'm worried they'll be like oh god now still like get over it which I know they won't I know that's in my head but I do wish sometimes friends would still be like how are you doing by the way like how often do you 
are you thinking about like your dad and things like that because I think the question that I really hate is when people are like are you better now are you feeling better now with like the now and you're like well no because like yeah I'm not feeling like certain emotions anymore but equally dad hasn't come back to life so the problem is not solved it's just like we've just moved on and adapted to different things so I'm definitely in the camp of wanting friends to still be sort of I guess it's almost like an acknowledgement too or um yeah just like yeah that still happened and that was really rubbish and I still feel rubbish from it and so but I think it might still also be in my head of me feeling like I can't talk to them in case they think like well I'm still banging on about this which I know they wouldn't do but so I think I'm trying to reconcile that still in my own mind about like actually I just need to reach out to them and talk to them about it um yeah but I would say like going I saw a grief counsellor which was the best decision I could have made um for about six months maybe like after dad died and even now I do think like oh maybe I should kind of have check-in sessions maybe that would help because for me even though yeah time has passed there's still an element of like the more time that goes by almost the sadder I get because I can't my still can't believe that it's happened and like I was saying earlier like you know I can't believe I haven't spoken to dad for three years so that to me is more sad than when I was then before when I could be like oh well I spoke to dad three weeks ago before he died do you know what I mean it's a tricky one but I think most I think people are very have very mixed opinions on that like I personally really like it when people ask me about it because then I'm like oh yeah thank god I can like get everything out that I wanted to say about it but I can totally see also how some people would be like oh I was having quite a good day and now this person brought it up and but I mean I guess the thing to remember is like if, for example, if one of my friends was thinking like, oh, I don't want to bring it up to Rose in case it makes her sad. It's like, well, I haven't forgotten. Like, it's still, I still know that it's happened. Like, you're not going to suddenly shock me and be like, oh, my God, my dad died, really? Like, I want to talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I think, to be fair, like, have a constructive conversation with a friend and just say, like, I know this time has passed, but what is it that I can be doing to help like do you want me to continue talking to you about it or should I wait for you to bring it up or if I say to you how are you doing today and you're like oh yeah fine like are you really fine or should I say like no no but like how are you really doing today like that kind of thing. Rose can I ask do you find yourself kind of unconsciously going towards some friends or some people in your life that you feel have experienced a similar sense of loss or grief um, or have a kind of maybe adept in emotional sensitivity. Um, I asked this because me again, me and said talk yesterday, and to me, just been my experience. Like when some friends ask me, like, "Oh, how are you getting on?" or "How's this?" I kind of make an unconscious decision to go, oh, "Okay, this is what I can express here in this situation with this person, and this is what I can express with this person because they know, like, they've been through it." Or, you know, or <laughs> on the flip side, there are friends where I'll give them an answer and they'll they'll kind of press because they know that there's something else that I'm not, maybe I'm not expressing. And I wonder, did you have a similar experience? Yeah, definitely. But to be honest, that was something I always had to learn. I think um, 
I think I write about it in the book where I had to kind of come to terms with some friends that are like really close friends. They just might not be good about good with talking about this thing. And so like initially I'd be really hurt and like, oh, like, why are you ignoring me? Like, I need your help, blah, blah, blah. Like, obviously I wouldn't say this to them, but I'm thinking it. Um, and so I had to kind of reassess friendships in my head and actually just see like, okay, these people are like really close friends, but they're not so great at this stuff. So I'll move over to like this person who might not be like the top, top of the friends, but has also been through this kind of thing, either like experienced a death of a parent or a death of someone very close or is more in tune with sort of emotional or mental healthy type things or have been through things like that. And so I kind of reassessed friendships in that way. So I knew who to turn to and who not to put like, pressure on if actually they just couldn't really talk about it and I've had a lot of friends since then come out after and say oh I really think like I might have been able to support you better but honestly just at 24 having someone talk about their dead parent was just too much for me because it just made me feel like oh what am I going to do when my parents die which like I can totally understand but obviously when you're in that moment for me I was like why like why are you talking to me about it um so yeah and so even now I think I do assess friendships and like especially when I'm meeting new people I always find I always think it's very telling to try and work out like who's been through something as opposed Mm. to who's actually lived their life with really no hardships really whatsoever and like because then I just know how to talk to them differently and how much I can open up like how much they're going to respond to it or be awkward about it um yeah and like obviously there's no like judgment involved it's just in terms of how far can we push this conversation and like is our friendship going to be on this deeper level of this stuff or are we going to be on a deeper level of friendship about something completely different and like both are fine it's just good to work out who you can go to absolutely yeah i I want i wanted to ask um this is gonna sound like a weird thing but when you know like when someone goes through something really shitty and you hear them in interviews and they kind of say oh, i would never change it for the world because it's like made me who i am now and this and the other and i'm not asking you to say something similar because of i'm almost certain that if you could go back three years and make it so it would never happen of course you would but do you think it you know you said for example there that when you meet someone now you try to see there's a bit of intuition there to see like oh has this person suffered whatever it may be whether it's a you know a parent passing away or something another trauma and, and that kind of means that you can then you there's that emotional availability with that person right because they've gone through something and um you know i wonder like if has it made you yourself rose has it made you like a more emotionally available person and not to say that you would you wish you that you was, you'd happily go through this all again and blah, blah, blah. i'm not saying that but like do you see that there's been growth there in yourself as a person and that to put a cliche on it, maybe there is a slightly silver lining on the really dark cloud there. Yeah, I think for me, I think, well, two, okay, so two elements of my answer, I guess, for this. Because I've written a book about it, I kind of have to be okay talking about <laughs> it. And I'll be at time <laughs> when yeah. I was writing it. I was like, this is so helpful to me. Can't wait to get it out there to help other people. And then to try and kind of like publicize it or market it I have to be in that emotional realm I have to 
do it and like when people talk to me about my book I have to suddenly be like oh yeah back into like the dad's dead kind of bubble like for example if I meet new people and say we're in a group setting and we're getting to know people and someone's like oh yeah did you know Rose wrote a book and then the new people are like oh amazing what's your book about you're like oh it's about my dead dad like which is (laughs) (laughs) but I mean it is good and it means that it often now we're like a bit older like a few years older it's normally more of a dialogue now people are really like wanting to know more about it and then it opens up then open up with their own kind of traumas or experiences and then we can have a big emotional chat and like I actually really really enjoy that I just love talking about feelings and emotions so it's very good um but then kind of on another point is that before I was always quite like shy and um I'm only five foot so I don't take up like a lot of physical space so I was just kind of like small and quiet and shy but I always had like a lot of opinions but I just never had the confidence to voice it whereas as soon as dad died I was like right all my opinions are coming out like because I just felt I felt like I had a almost a I wouldn't say like a shield but I just felt like I was like god I just don't care if someone doesn't like my opinion I don't care like something way worse has happened to my life so I'm gonna voice this the worst that's going to happen is someone will be like, you're wrong or no, I disagree. Fine. But at least like I've got out what I needed to say. So I think, yeah, it's made me like a lot more of a vocal person. So I'm just like, I don't have time for any of this like shit. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and do you think it's made you in, in, in a way, um, you said that you really like to talk about feelings now and have those kind of deep emotional conversations. I wonder did you like to do that beforehand? And and now that you've kind of gone through something quite traumatic and you've had to deal with emotions, I always find that anyone who's had to really, really do, unless they're like a really special person who's had no hardship and yet still they're the most empathetic ever. I feel like only going through emotions is what makes you like truly empathetic because you can always relate it somewhat back to your own experience. Even if the two traumas are, are, are different in, in circumstances. Uh, do you like think that's kind of, you know, you said how you had the two f- bands of friends, right? The one, the friends that you would go to talk about this type of thing. And then the friends who maybe it's more lighter conversations doesn't mean they're less of a friend, but the topic is just very different. And maybe do you ever reflect that maybe for your own friends, like, you might, especially someone who maybe was quiet beforehand and didn't voice their opinions, you might have been in that band of lighter conversations, but now you're almost like the go-to person of like, oh shit, I'm dealing with something like, who better to talk to than Rose? Yeah, I think so. And like, I think because of that too, I feel more comfortable in drawing out emotions from friends. Like if I feel like someone's going through something or if I know that they're dealing with something or how sort of, you know, maybe something's going on it home or mental health stuff I feel more like I can be in a position to be like you can talk like you can talk to me if you want like I'm here for you we can discuss emotions and the context might not be the same but I bet a lot of what you're feeling I felt previously so I kind of quite like that role like obviously I wish I didn't have to have that role because I wish my dad was still alive but at least I do feel like I can help friends and I haven't had any friends since then who have lost a parent but I know that in the future when parents start going I'll be able to try and help like as best as I can and not fall into the cliches or things that I found really annoying for example um yeah and I think just 
I think it is good just to try and talk about mental health and death and grief and all these things because especially like when you see someone dying on TV it's very like that's not really how it looks or happens in real life it's very different um and so it is really good to talk about that kind of stuff and again like that was a motivation to writing the book because like someone dying is like an active process like I try and think of it almost you need to shut down your computer and it's like oh you've got these tabs open like shut them and then shut this (laughs) if you want to do this and it's like that's what happens they don't just suddenly like die it's like organs shut down and like weird things start happening and like to the body and it like looks weird and sounds weird and like you don't know about that until you're literally witnessing it and then you're like oh god like what is going on is this normal what's supposed to happen and so that's what again like I tried to write about that quite honestly like in the book and I try not to make it like that graphic but I think if you're going to talk about death and someone dying it's good to know a bit about what's going to happen because I remember actually like asking the nurse like when we knew dad would only have like a few hours left I remember saying like okay so what happens then like how does someone die and then when they die then what happens because you just no idea and then she just kind of gave me this little pamphlet and I was like oh no yeah Jesus I I was gonna say Rose um I meditate on death very often and people might say oh Jim you're so grim what are you doing that for <laughs> i i do it because it makes my life better i say it makes my life better in that i think that this is going to sound extreme again i think the closer you get to death or if you you spend time even in your head close to death i think you're more likely to live life like say la vie like right now this is this this can't happen this will happen to me i don't know when and because of that like you said i'm going to voice my opinion i don't care anymore if he disagrees with me i don't care if uh, they might judge me for leaving my job or this thing, this and that and i was wondering do you do you notice the difference in your kind of outlook or your approach to life as a result of being so close to death yeah i think so just in terms of confidence and like i was saying before like not like finding my voice because it wasn't like i was like a mute before but just being way more confident in voicing opinions like if I I guess like not in an argumentative way but if you know like rather than just going along with it because that's what the group has decided if I think there's like oh why don't we just try this or like no I don't agree with that kind of thing so the confidence in in that way confidence to do more things and also like this probably sounds really silly but I am still a bit shy and you know in like social settings if I need to like walk into somewhere like really crowded or academic and like important and scary in my head I'll just have a little pep talk of like I can do this I've been through worse I've seen worse I've had to enter a hospital room with like my dad looking terrible and about to die like I can walk into this room so it's kind of stuff like that in a sort of pep talky sort of way and it just gives me confidence and almost like a shield I guess but also in doing that I then also kind of feel like dad's with me as well like giving me extra confidence I I wanted to ask you that actually um how how often do you kind of uh I don't know this is I was gonna say acknowledge his presence but maybe that's not the right way to put it but you know how often do you kind of make sure that he's not you know just 
banished to the past type thing and, and like you said you feel like your dad's with you in these certain situations is that a conscious thing that you do or because i'll admit like i'm guilty let's say my grandparents have passed away like i don't think i really kind of uh keep them with me so to speak and only unless like they get brought up in conversation with other family members but i never really and that's not to say that i don't believe in souls or anything like that i think i do but i maybe it's just a something inside me finds it kind of hard to bring them with me I find it easy to kind of be like, right, well, that's a time period and that's no longer, you know, that time period closed type thing. Do you kind of actively make sure that he's still present in your life? Yeah, I do. And like, I don't, I don't think it is an active kind of decision. I think he just is. And I think because, um, like, I'm not, I'm not religious. So I'm not saying this from like a religious like standpoint, although I feel I've, I'm probably quite spiritual, but um, because dad and I were like very, very close, but, um, and I kind of explain our relationship in the book a bit because he was based in LA and I was in London or growing up in the Cotswolds. We didn't see each other every day, but we spoke like every day and it would be over email or Skype or phone. And I always just kind of knew what he was doing. And especially being like a young, small female in London, because of the time difference between London and LA, if ever I was walking in the dark, I would just call him because it, it might be like, gone midnight here or even you know like wintry 8 30 p.m here but it'll be like middle of the day for him so if you could pick up the phone he would so I just felt like that was a safety thing to, be able to walk home in the dark talking to him but equally if I'm just a bit bored I just sent him an email like what are you doing and be like, oh, I'm having this for lunch and so we'd always just be in this weird sort of I would just always know what he was doing um and so I think which potentially isn't the case for a lot of other people like if I don't know what my mom's doing all the time for example but it's because I see her from time to time like because she lives in England so we don't need to have that same sort of closeness because I do see her um mm -hmm. so because of that I think well after dad died I just I didn't realize like how much of a constant sort of like company or comfort he was in my life um like a constant sort of presence and so because of that, I do think about him probably like every day, but it's only really for, well, like if something funny happens or if I'm like fall over or like do something a bit silly, I'm like, oh my God, I tend to laugh to myself and like imagine that dad's laughing. Um, but also, you know, when I'm doing big sort of lifey things or like I've got a new job or a promotion or I've moved house or I've submitted my PhD and now I'm waiting for like my viva, or I've got cats now, like it's things like that where I'm kind of in my head telling him and like that's what kind of, it's things like that that really makes me miss being able to tell him. So it's like, oh, you don't, hopefully you know, but you, I haven't been able to tell you as like living you. I get you. And I wanted to ask, how it's been three years now. And one thing that I find kind of really horrible about people passing away is that like my memories start to really blur and I start, like things that I was certain of now i'm like oh is that did that actually happen or were they actually like that and like now i mean i can remember what they look like because you know thank god these days we have photos i can't imagine what it was like hundreds of years ago but i can't remember really what their voices are like and that's a bit of a, like when i think about it that's like a real sad thing um how is that with you like i was three years on like have you kind of experienced that or maybe have you i don't know if you have like voice recordings or videos or something that can help kind of stimulate those memories 
yeah so I was really conscious of like not wanting that to happen because to me that was just like really overwhelmingly like sad thought so um even though I don't really watch or listen to them yet because I do start to find it quite painful I know that when I do get to the point where I'm like oh was that his voice or like oh I can't really remember now I know I've got footage to be able to watch and, and listen to and also sometimes I am caught by surprise because his friends on Facebook might suddenly post pictures or something like of an old throwback picture or video of them on set or something and he'll just be in it and like it catches me off guard but then I'm suddenly like oh I've seen him again and like I can hear yeah that's his voice like that kind of thing um or family that find like old recordings and then they'll just suddenly email it to me and I'll open it and then I'm like oh there it is again which like it's good but I I have like videos and stuff on my phone but I can't really look at them yet because I do still find it too sad but I know that they're there for when I want that and I think also the book was a good way of preserving a few memories I guess like my dad made up so many silly words so he's just a silly silly person and like I used to write them I think I've written a lot of them in the book like his little sayings or how he'd sign off emails or things like that so I kind of I've written them some in the book but I've got a list of others so I think as long as I can remember his little like silly phrases or things that he'd do that will kind of bring him fully back into like oh and now I can remember his voice and this and that and everything the uh I think it was the first podcast me and Seb ever did was we we talked about like the, almost the ultimate homage you can pay to somebody is to live as if you knew them, you know, like this person had a big impact on like showed you things about yourself, taught you things, you know, and if you can live with those things with you, essentially he is living through you, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, dad was a big like project person he always loved having projects on the go and that's definitely like filtered through to me I love a project like I said like he was really silly so I don't think I'm a silly person so I find everything really embarrassing but I have learned to kind of like try not to find things as embarrassing or socially awkward and just do it um yeah and he was just he was known in the business for being like really kind like a real team player and sticking up for like not like the underdogs, but, you know, like just really trying to help everyone out. So that's like quite an honour to know that he was so well respected. But also I try and just obviously just be really kind and supportive to people as well. Um, and he had like a lot of friends and I have a lot of friends, I guess, I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, like kind of the connective, I like being the sort of like glue that connects different friends together and stuff, I guess. And I think I've got that from dad too. So I do feel like kind of with me in those sort of those sort of aspects. And he was actually quite spiritual person and like talking about emotions and stuff. So I think we really bonded like that, whereas my brother and my mum are a bit more closed off. So we are more similar in that respect too. Beautiful. I just wanted to ask before we like finish off, like it's been <clears throat> three and a half years since your dad passed away, two and a half years since you written the book. Like how how does like how does grief sit with you now like how how do you how does how do you experience it now nowadays and and um for anyone who's kind of like 
I don't know, maybe at the, at the beginning of that process, like what is it that you would, like if you could speak to Rose back then when it was all happening, like what is there anything that you'd be saying to her now? Um, I think it's hard, isn't it? Because you don't want to fall into the cliches of like feel all the emotions. Because if someone said that to me back <laughs> then, I'd be like, well, that sounds terrible. <laughs> yeah. So I would say maybe like, difficult because also I hated like oh time will heal which like I don't think it does but it helps like time definitely helps things like you know like I was talking about being really like angry or anxious or just crying all the time or feeling I had really bad memory loss actually afterwards which I spoke to a grief counselor about apparently that's very normal as well and I write about that in the book so it's things like that like I do still experience these things but they're to a kind of a lesser degree so I think that's how I've changed over the years. Like I still feel griefy and I'll definitely have days where I'm just like really sad. Um, But the kind of cognitive issues aren't like memory loss, aren't or like confusion and feeling really sort of like out of body experience. Like that's kind of gone now, but definitely I think when I'm stressed about other things or feeling anxious, I think they feel worse because their the grief is kind of like on top of that as well. So I think like my baseline of being generally so like before we knew dad was ill or anything, then I was like a really happy, like fun person. And I like to think I am still now, but like just a bit like my baseline or my tolerance level is changed a bit. Mm. I think that I think that happens to kind of everyone who goes through a certain level of trauma. Like I feel like it has to change you in some way. Um, whereby, like you said, you want to think that you're still the same person, or at least you have mainly are the same person that you were beforehand. But it's almost impossible to be that exactly the same, you know? Yeah, and I think also um, I talk about this in the book as well. I really felt like I had a bit of an identity crisis. I didn't really know who I was anymore, and because I felt I had just matured so much over so like I think between finding out dad had cancer to him dying was like seven weeks or something so it was like very quick and before the diagnosis there was no we had no idea that cancer was like it was just who knew um so yeah I think just being not so much matured because like a parent had died but spending those weeks just in the hospital with him talking to doctors seeing all these procedures and things going on and dealing with his medication and then when he was he ping-ponged in and out of hospital quite a bit when he was home basically like my mum my brother and I like being almost like well obviously like full-time carers for him getting his medication together he had kind of further people who have parents who were like really ill in hospital or have cancer they'll know that you get kind of ports put into your body and fluids are going in and out and it's like sticking out of your neck and we had to drain dad's lung every day which is just disgusting and like none of us are medically trained and it's just even to talk about it now is just so bizarre like oh we actually did that that is so mental so it was kind of it was like things like that so and then you know watching him have dialysis which again is grim and not pleasant to watch but I wanted to keep him company 
Um, and just also when you've seen a parent or someone you care about deteriorate so rapidly and so extremely, like is what cancer does to the body, it's just it just changes you. And so I remember coming back to London and being with my friends and in my usual kind of bubble and social world and just thinking like, oh, the things I've seen, <laughs> very different to what we're chatting about in this sort of really sort of surface level like chat that before I would have got like really deep into like yeah let's chat about this stupid shit whereas now I'm like no (laughs) I have no time for this at the moment I've seen some trauma and I need to go away and process it so yeah I definitely had a bit of an identity crisis going on well um I would definitely recommend uh your book for sure I th- I mean I like I said I've only lost um you know my grandparents which is I I feel like I mean it's still grief but I kind of feel like it's so much more expected you know um especially you know whereas like living you I mean again li- I guess your parents is also expected but not when you're so young um I feel like it's definitely more shocking and, and I really like the way how you describe it in the book like you don't have to read it in a linear way like from page one to to the last page like you can like use the chapters as and when you see fit according to like your own experience which is something something actually that i've taken on for some other books um we kind of feel like we always feel like we have to finish pick up and start and finish a book whereas like sometimes a book might only be good to you for like two or three chapters you know and Mm -hmm. that's like a really kind of new way of like thinking about books i appreciate that uh, for sure and i I really do appreciate that the book itself it is like you said it's very i'll say it for you i'll say it for you but it is very honest and there isn't any of that you can tell like you haven't had like an editor to being like hey take that out that's too much or oh I'm not sure about this do you know what I mean you can tell that like that was you in the moment writing that type of stuff so it's, and, and that's refreshing in, in in reality um so it's called 365 days past the traffic lights got it here read it twice because the first time I read it which when we were supposed to have this podcast in January of 2020 um the pandemic decided to strike so that never happened um still haven't got my refund from Ryanair for the tickets but hey here we are uh, <laughs> yeah um I mean that's no surprise is it but hey um so that can be bought on Amazon can't it that can um yeah perfect there we go so for anyone who's like interested in reading that it's quite short which because i think people who like like why the hell would i want to read a book about grief i mean jesus but it's only like 180 pages so you can kind of like it's like almost like a little like a like almost like a, a grief manual that's how i kind of saw it when i was reading it so uh it's, it's good in that way um so i definitely recommend anyone who's interested to read that and we'll we'll post the link uh in the podcast so anyone who wants to can uh, can find that easily uh and i just thank you so much for coming on it's been like i said a real pleasure having you on and lived up to the expectations those year-long expectations it delivered so thank you so um, much for coming thank you for like persevering people like okay we're trying again <laughs> but in this I, case, and then keep moving it but no it's been really great to chat and like yeah thank goodness that you're not like oh why did we bother waiting for so long <laughs> no <laughs> way no way no no way the, the guilt was very weird, real on our end we're like oh my god i can't believe we're rescheduling again um no, yeah like, so, we'll do it in person we'll just wait so it can be in person and then yeah exactly who knows so thank god for zencaster shout out to zencaster <laughs> but um <laughs> also but yeah. just, just to uh, let the listeners know when we release this podcast rose's phd will hopefully be officially published maybe you can tell yeah, us a quick exactly. little something about that for people who might be interested 
Oh yeah, sure. Okay, so at the moment, so I've the PhD is submitted, and then you have to wait three months for your viva, which is the period that I'm in at the moment. So hopefully, by the time this podcast comes out, I've done the viva. Fingers crossed, they want to jinx it. It will have gone well. So it's in anthropology, and my research looks at um, Native American artists in urban areas, specifically Los Angeles, and how um, art is used as a way of perpetuating Native and Indigenous like tradition and identity, notions of community, tying the diaspora population together, um, how it feeds into elements of like politics and recognition visibility visual sovereignty all that kind of stuff and so I basically map out a Native American art world in Los Angeles by looking at the different arenas of uh, like display performance exhibition in the city how they're all interconnected so whether that's Native American art hanging on a gallery or a museum wall or kind of cultural art events or powwows and um, on screen and in theatre performances so very broad, spoke to a lot of really wonderful Native artists who obviously could not have done my PhD without them. So, yeah, just really, really fascinating uh, to kind of map that social world a bit. But obviously from a outsider positionality like mine, is obviously I'm not Native American, so um, I was afforded a really lovely glimpse at it, I guess. Um, but mm. it's been a great project, and LA actually is the is home to the largest demographic of off-reservation or urban-dwelling Native Americans. So that's another reason why I chose it. So Ooh, it has three okay. dia- three uh, local ancestral tribes, the Tongva, Chumash, and Satavium. And then there's a, like a massive diaspora population of Native people who have moved to LA from tribes elsewhere in the state. So kind of mapping those kind of community networks and hierarchies and tensions and social issues, but through the lens of, Beautiful. Fascinating. <laughs> Beautiful. Jim Jim and I are collecting doctors on, on here like Pokemon cards to tell you. <laughs> Honestly. So we'll, we'll, I'll tell you what, we'll release this when you have when you've got the DR, the famous DR by your name. Um and we'll do that with the English style, which means without the point after the R. I didn't realise there's a difference between American and English. So uh yeah, so I had, to then, I had to then change, we had to go back and change all of our previous doctors. I was like, you know, one rule for one and all for the other. So I had to change them all, mate. So remember when you go to America, DR doctor dot in America and in England without the dot. That's a little thing there for you, pal. Um, but yeah, beautiful. Well, I'm actually, gonna, I'd actually love to read that, you know, because I, I love um, Native American history. A few of the books back there are, uh, are about Native American history. So yeah, I'd love to read that if possible. Yeah, that'd be great. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, um, Rose. It's been a real, real pleasure. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.